When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Boardroom Podcast. Listeners, let me tell you about the Boardroom Show, the largest surfboard marketplace with great deals on boards, wetsuits, fins, gear, and art. Discussions, roundtables, the Boardroom Talks. Steve Sherman gives a discussion entitled War and Peace about the Kelly Slater and Andy Irons friendship. Jimmy Medico offers insight on the early years of Tom Curran and Al Merrick through his photographic lens. Surf foiling and downwind foiling, a discussion with foiling experts answering all the questions you may have about getting into the ocean with a foil and away from the crowds going super fast. Why wouldn't you? And of course, Icons of Foam. This year, we're honoring Bing Copeland in the tribute to the Masters shape-off. Eight world-class shapers will do battle as they honor Bing Copeland, trying to replicate some of his classic designs. We have a massive exhibit hall filled with surfboard manufacturing industries, finest shapers, builders, and designers, and all have promised incredible deals. And as I mentioned, foil exhibitors will be on hand to showcase their surf wing and downwind foils. The Boardroom Show, October 7th and 8th, all that plus much more live music, food and beverage, the Longboard Collectors Club meet, much, much more. October 7th and 8th, the Boardroom International Surfboard Show presented by U.S. Blanks. Let me tell you about the California Gold Surf Auction. Bidding begins September 30th, goes through October 14th. You can preview the lots in mid-September. The bidding begins September 30th, goes through October 14th. We have boards from Tom Parrish, Hobie, Gordon Smith, Phil Edwards, Greg Knoll, Mike Hinson, Skip Fry, Steve Liss, Weber, Al Chapman, Town & Country, Dick Brewer, Lightning Bolt, the star of the show, a Pat Curran 1963 foam, many, many others, plus a Rick Griffin collection and the Eddie contest memorabilia, posters, hats, competitors' trunks, trophies, all this and more. California Gold Surf Auction bidding begins September 30th. And one more thing before we get into the podcast, hold your horses. This is important. Surfers-Village, surfers-village.com. How about this? Great waves with no one around, great accommodations, super comfortable bed overlooking a perfect barreling spitting right-hander, incredible food. You'll get all this and much, much more at Surfer's Village in the Telos Islands. I went there this year, absolutely scored. And you can get $175 off of your trip by mentioning me and or the boardroom show. Go to surfers-village.com right now. Book your trip for next year. Look, we only live once. Let's go, people. Let's get it done. This man is, frankly, the voice of East Coast surfing, and he has been for decades. He has a plethora of knowledge about not only East Coast surfing history, but surf history in general. A good friend and a great human being. On this episode of the Boardroom Podcast, Hunter Joslin. Let us begin.
Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. Can you hear me? Look at you. Jeez. Can you hear me okay, bud? Yeah, I got to get hair and makeup first. Oh, shit. <laughs> My Hunter Joslin, good morning, buddy. Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you, Scott. Good to see you. Thanks for waking me up after a quick nap. No worries. Got some questions for you. Uh-oh. You got a, you need a coffee or anything? Are you good to go? Yeah, I had my uh my tea before I paddled this morning. So I'm I'm caffeined up. Where did you paddle? Um we have uh the ocean and then we're on a barrier island here in Melbourne Beach uh, and on the other side of the island is the Indian River. So today the wind was out of the uh southeast which uh we have a little 2 foot swell running and a lot of chop from the southeast wind so I went in the Indian River. So it's a bit oh, calmer. Cool. And we've got six miles under my belt, hour and a half. And uh, sometimes that's just it, the heat today was just bloody hot. The sun was baking and uh, it drained me a lot. Yeah. Um, well, kudos to you, brother, for paddling six, seven miles. That's incredible. Um, have you seen the movie Oppenheimer? I have not. I, it's on my calendar. I need to do it. You probably saw Barbie, though, right? No, didn't do Barbie. I did, <laughs> I did see Tom Cruise and uh, did that in IMAX. That was a cool flick. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. IMAX. See, I'm waiting. I, I, there's only two showings a day on the one IMAX theater here for Oppenheimer. So uh, maybe this weekend. Yeah. Well, um, let's bring you back to the beginning. When did when did you start surfing? When did I start surfing? The first time I ever surfed was in Virginia Beach in 1962. Um, my cousin uh, lived up on a, somewhere around 70, 70th Street, something I can't remember. But it was near Fort Story on the north end of uh, Virginia Beach. And he had a collection of surfboards. He'd been surfing since the 30s. Wow. And uh, he was a big real estate uh, guy in Virginia Beach, uh, oceanfront house. And uh, yeah, uh, I paddled in and stood up on my first wave. That was great. But I actually got into surfing in uh, 1965. Uh, 1965, there was a hurricane. I lived in North Palm Beach, Florida, and the hurricane drove a 450-foot uh, freighter called the Amaryllis aground on Singer Island. They were aiming to come in Palm Beach Inlet, and they missed it by a mile and plowed straight into the beach uh, right on top of a reef. And uh, that that grounding of that freighter created the surf culture in Palm Beach County. Wow, that's interesting. That's so you had sandbars rights and lefts coming off of this freighter, I imagine, or was there no? Yeah, sandbars? yeah, it had a it had a bit of an angle coming from the southeast or east southeast, um, which created uh, ultimately before they did. Uh, cut it up and drag uh, and and took it off out a mile outside where they they made an artificial reef but it was there from 65 to 69 
And at the end of it, uh, there was a cove because of the way the sand was moving. There was lefts uh, three or 400 yards. Wow. On the right conditions when the, when the bars connected and everything. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Um, it well, was, that was a sad day when that thing, when that thing got taken away, how, how quickly after it was removed, did everything kind of just go back to, oh, yeah, um, not very I, good. Yeah. I went away to college. So, uh, I, I wasn't around for the next two years. Um, and when I came back, all of our focus was at Palm beach inlet. The North side of the inlet is, a, a had a pumping station that transferred the sand from the north side of Palm Beach Inlet to the south side because the south side was would be depleted of sand as the move yeah. the way the currents carried the sand. And that was our spot pump house. And pump house broke on wind swells. Uh, and uh, so we have the Bahama Bank. Today. Isn't that a wave to this day? Uh, yes, it's famous because during the big, huge north swells, it's uh, a, a veritable pipeline. Yeah, exactly. It's a crazy yeah. left-hand dredger. It it never really did like that. Uh, back then, we would always paddle across the inlet or drive over and park it at uh, Reef Road, which yeah. is the other famous place. But the, the sandbar really, um, there was pictures taken of it. Nobody wrote it back in the uh, 80s or 70s, actually, mid-70s. Nobody was riding it. There was no jet skis at that point in time. And, and we were all just surfing reef road. But you you could see it. They took photos of it. Um, Would you just see spit it, like just mean laughs that were spitting? Yeah, and just, like, just, wow. just going, wow. <laughs> but we were getting great waves at reef road. So it really wasn't a wasn't something we were concerned about but the beauty of pump house is that uh, we have the bahama bank straight east of palm beach county and that kills any open ocean swells so the the value of pump house is if there was a southeast wind blowing 15 20 miles an hour we get these uh like short period four or five second wind swell that you could surf at pump house and protected from that wind or was that wind out yeah when the current was running out the inlet it would be clean on the inside so an outgoing tide uh, pump house would be clean with the swell coming through yeah now, how many guys were surfing pump house or reef road or any we had a, we had a pretty good surf population uh even at that point in time in the 70s 80s um when the amaryllis south was florida right i mean we're talking south florida here we're South Florida. We're at the northern end of South Florida. So I left Palm Beach County to move to Brevard County, Melbourne Beach, which is about 100 miles north, because we're out of the shadow of the Bahama Bank. Right. So we get a southeast open ocean swell. But right. down there, it wasn't. But there is a considerable amount of surfers. It was a, a popular thing to do. And Pump House could get really crowded. Why do you think surfing was popular on the East Coast in the 60s? Like, what is your, I mean, we know the obvious reasons, like movies. and. Well, yeah, I mean, in the summer, I, it, that changed my life, without a doubt, because we all. Did it ruin your life? 
No, no, no. It's made my life. <laughs> <laughs> Unless sitting here talking to you means my life is ruined. No. Um, but we all went to a drive-in movie theater to see Endless Summer. Yeah. And we were just, that's all we could think about. So yeah. we we got bit by the bug thanks to Endless Summer and Bruce Brown. And, and uh, I guess now we have to... Um, Thank. What's the guy's name from Hobie? Oh, um, he just got inducted in the Walk of Fame yesterday. Dick Metz. Oh yeah, Metz. Yeah. yeah. So the the true history of the Endless Summer starts with Dick Metz and his travels in South Africa in the early '60s. Has set up Bruce Brown and his uh, creation of the Endless Summer. The the story that wasn't quite true. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Metz Metz has got. Uh, I mean, he's, it's just so interesting, right? That behind the scenes, behind the scenes of Endless Summer was this, this guy who'd been there before and told Bruce Brown all about. Pretty interesting. Now you've been, um, you're a member of the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame. You've been, I don't want to mischaracterize this, but I'm going to say you've been a, a master of ceremonies for surfing contests, for surfing events for decades. And um, is that a, is that a proper characterization? Correct. I, I actually started uh, doing skateboard events in the 70s. I was the, the MC for the first Hester Pro Bowl series, which was the uh, beginning of vertical skating competition. So Henry Hester was a downhill uh, racer, not a yeah. bowl rider he put his uh, efforts into bringing bowl riding to the forefront of the sport. And uh, I was there um, and was able to pick up a microphone when they didn't have anybody that was really knew what they were doing. And not that I knew what I was doing, but it's kind of been a natural talent for me. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. That's interesting. Henry Haster, a guy known for slalom skating, um, sort of pushing the envelope regarding the ball and pool skating. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, he he did a great service to uh, skateboarding by hosting that series. It, it changed the whole direction of what skating was all about because they'd been doing races out at La Costa and the downhill thing. They had a good following and they, they actually went across the country to Colorado and Ohio and, and did races but the bowl thing was uh, just emerging because it took a while for the skate parks to come along with correctly uh, produced bowls. Yeah. There were a lot of uh, abhorrences out there that were trying to be bowls. But once they got the, uh, the construction methods down and you could get smooth transitions and true vert, uh, it changed the whole direction of skating. That's that's really cool. I'm stoked to hear that about Henry. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about Henry. And I, I don't follow skate history that well. I'm sure it's a well-known thing, but that's that's cool because I'm a big fan of Henry Astor. He's a great guy. Super good yeah, guy. Superhuman. He's a a, a map surfer and a, a well. I've got it from a pretty good source. You know what he's doing now is foiling. Yeah. Well, most people are foiling. <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you have the time and the and the uh, physical capability foiling yeah. is uh, the next level. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. 
Um, look, we know that the East Coast's greatest surfer is Kelly Slater. Um, but the East Coast is home to some of the most interesting surfers that I've come across. They seem the East Coast seems to breed uh just a little bit more wildness, I guess. And 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 maybe I'm mischaracterizing it. Maybe I'm throwing a, a generalization, a blanket on all of the East Coast surfers, but I'm gonna go down a list of guys and I would love it if you could provide me with some insight, provide the listeners with an anecdote or a story or just some insight about these guys. So the first one is Jeff Crawford. What can you tell me about Jeff Crawford that I don't already know? Crawdaddy is uh, the nickname and, and I changed it to from Crawdaddy to Crappy Pappy. Because he he could be uh, he could be pretty uh, mean out in the lineup. He, it was it was Jeff's inlet, so to speak. Uh, but Jeff was a phenomenal surfer. He could surf regular foot or, or uh, goofy foot. He was uh, naturally a goofy foot first, but he switched stance without a problem. Um, when during the uh, '70s twin fin era, when he was learning to do three sixties. It was like he was doing it both ways, switch foot and uh, natural and regular foot. Um, he was a phenomenal talent. And then when he went to Hawaii and proved himself uh, as a barrel rider of the highest order, winning the Pipe Masters, his uh, reputation was set in stone. Yeah. And I did something last night. I, I went on. Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing and watched video of the 1977 Florida Pro, which Jeff Crawford won. He beat Robert Bartholomew. I'm sure you remember it. And man, oh man, is Jeff Crawford surfing smooth and he's doing what you just suggested. He's he's going and mid, mid off the lip, he's switching stance at the top of the off the lip and going to regular foot and going cutting back right. And uh, he, he won the event. Jeff Crawford, just amazing. Um, yeah, and that was a great longboard maneuver. Uh, the guys that could switch stance on longboards—that was a patented maneuver, and he took it to shortboards. Nobody else was doing it, uh, so yeah, he, he made it, and he was smooth. He was a style master, still is. He's still surfing, and quite the style master. Is he still out at the inlet? No, he has a, a house, a home in uh, Hawaii on the North Shore, right? Oh, Right in front of, uh, or I'm not sure what what his beachfront is, but he's right in there amongst pipeline and off the wall. He's yeah, right there. Cool. What about this East Coast surfing champion, Gary Proper? Proper was, uh, uh, God rest his soul. He's passed. Uh, he was an arrogant some bitch, but he had footwork and maneuvers just like what we were talking about with what Jeff did on a shortboard uh, proper did stuff on longboards that was mind nine when you would see footage uh when i first saw the footage of him in puerto rico it absolutely blew my mind the guy could surf like nobody's business he was the real deal he never could prove himself in hawaii he was not a big wave guy he was a small wave maestro and yeah. he he surfed with absolute style and radicalness, his drop knee action and 
uh, and he could switch foot as well. And his nose riding and getting heels was second to none. He was he was an incredible force to uh, to be reckoned with. And then he turns out his uh, Hobie model sold more longboards than anybody else. You know, I, I heard an interesting story about Gary that he was here. He was actually going up to L.A. to have a new logo made for his Hobie Gary Proper model. And um, he was hanging out in Dana Point with Mickey Munoz and somebody else. I forget who else. And oh, Bruce Brown. And uh, a truck pulls up. Steve McQueen gets out. He's doing filming with for the on any Sunday, the motorcycle movie that Bruce Brown put out. Steve McQueen is they chit chat in the parking lot. They're all talking. Of course, Gary Proper's jaws dropped. You can't believe Steve McQueen's this guy's a living legend. And um, somehow or another, Steve McQueen finds out that Gary Proper needs a ride up to Laguna to to do something with the with the logo. And so he goes, hey, I'll give you a ride. So Gary Proper gets in Steve McQueen's truck, just him and Steve, and they drive up to Laguna Beach. And in the process, Gary gets cold and Steve McQueen gives him a leather jacket. Says, here, just keep it. You know, apparently they bonded on some had not having fathers or something like that. And Steve McQueen took a, a liking to Gary and gave him his, his leather jacket. There you go. Yeah, have you ever heard that one? I have not. Yeah. How about Mike Tabling? Table. Tabling was the first em emerging talent that proved himself in California. He put the East Coast on the map in California. He went out and won the events he entered. And yeah. he was uh, another flawless surfer. He wasn't quite at, at, as snappy and, and wild as Gary was but he was smooth and precise. And then uh, his transition into the shortboard era, the, the Michael Tabling twin fins and how he surfed that was second to none from the East Coast. So he, he was my first idol of, on the East Coast. I, when I learned that he was, uh, what he did in California, I just said, and then he's the best. Was, yeah. He, the first one that to let california know people on the east coast could really serve that they paid attention to he did a good job of of marketing himself too and in, in that um i know that i i want to say did weber surfboards have a tabling model correct yeah i don't i'm trying to think if it was a tabling model or he was just in all the ads they they had several different uh, models as they transitioned from long to short, he was on a Weber performer on the, the longboard phase of it. It wasn't a tabling model. Um, perhaps they had one as they tr transitioned, but I. Uh, yeah, as I'm I recall, sure I think it might have been that he was riding the ski, which was like the Nat Young model Weber. And right, I think they right. made yeah. did a lot of. Yeah, I don't think he actually had his name as a as a model on a Weber. I was lucky enough to meet his son recently. I was on the East Coast a couple of weeks ago and met his son, super good guy, and very much reminded me of Mike, um, mm -hmm. who, I, who I just thought Mike was just a cool guy, just a really approachable human. Yeah, no, he was great. He would call me 
you'd find out I was in Southern California, he'd call me up and say, you got to come down to Bob, man. I've got this place. And he would, he would invite any East coaster that he could get a hold of that he knew was in California. And I was one of them. And unfortunately I never was able to take him up on the offer because he, he had a condo right in front of a, a right-hand point break. And, uh, uh, I never took him up on the offer, but I was uh, uh, completely uh, stoked that he would invite me. So I yeah. felt I had arrived. <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah, your your childhood—not your childhood, but your sort of your hero guy—is like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Well, I got to surf with him. I I, I cemented my relationship with tabling in uh, I, I would have to say it was like '84. We uh, ended up surfing at the uh, Rodanthe Pier on an absolute epic uh, storm swell. Yeah, and it was, it, it was barrels. It, we and we surfed all day. I I just showed up and he was there with Bruce Veluzzi and we just surfed together. And uh, that's how I I got to know Mike Tabling and he respected me because of my ability to surf at that point in time. So that was, that was our connection from then yeah. on. Cool. He knew he's like, Hunter's got chops. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned Bruce Veluzzi, who I don't know much about Bruce. I've done a deep dive on some East coast surfers. Um, and Bruce Veluzzi seems perhaps one of the most interesting and maybe one that whose, whose character who needs to be more excavated needs to be told. What do you know about? Yeah, and, I, and I'm not one to enlighten you further on that. He is a Cocoa Beach boy, uh, and this was before my time. He passed away before I I came up here and got into the mix. Yeah. So I I know very little about Bruce Veluzzi other than his talent was uh, respected by everybody. He they figured if he'd have lived, he would have been the one of the greatest ever from the East Coast. Um, yeah. he, had tremendous skill in all conditions he rode big waves and uh a standout wherever he went and surfed but that i have no personal knowledge of bruce Veluzzi. yeah well i know he was a, a writer he's proficient writer he wrote for the magazines and and like a lot of the surfers back in the mid 70s you know you surfed in the competitions and you also wrote the article about the competitions yeah, he was a multi-talented in that direction, and we lost him way too early. You know, I found out that Bruce Veluzzi is the person that named Backdoor Pipeline. He named that wave Backdoor. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's news to me. Yeah, well, that's what we do here. You know, we break news. <laughs> 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 or, or find news that's broken <laughs> <laughs> probably more probably we yeah that's probably more what we do uh well here's one of the most interesting guys uh, certainly sort of a brainiac and that's greg lore tell me a little bit about greg lore greg was just the all-around style master he, wherever he went and wherever he surfed, he turned heads. He he was uh, uh, kind of, you would think of him on the lines of um, Wayne Lynch. Yeah. And that kind of approach to his surfing. And yeah. he was just, a, and, and still is to this day, he's just a laid back guy. Yeah. There's no, any 
inkling of an ego. He's just a phenomenal surfer. Um, yeah. And 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 it sort of an engineering background. This Greg obviously with resin research has done so much regarding breakthroughs in surf technology, uh, epoxy resins. I mean, this guy understands fabrics and epoxy resins. And I just wonder, I guess I should just interview Greg. I'd love to interview Greg, actually. He's such a great guy. And you're right, he's kind of got like a Southern charm to him. Yeah, he lives in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, um, runs his uh, resin sales out of there. He has, has a warehouse here that's run by a guy named Sammy Barker. But uh, Greg was ahead of his time in surfboard manufacturing materials uh, going to the epoxy route way before anybody else um, and was conscious, environmentally conscious before anybody else. And his design, he was the one that pioneered concave bottoms on surfboards because everybody else was doing rolled V's and V bottoms and stuff. And he put the concave from nose to tail to in the tail. I mean, he was the one that uh, Greg Weber uh, is very uh, appreciative of the the in, uh, the direction that Greg was taking with concave bottoms way back in the early 80s. And oh, that's interesting. That's cool to know. That's, and I know that, you know, he was involved um, on some level with. Um, what's the guy from Firewire? Uh, Australia. Nev. Huh? No, not now. There's another guy that the other guy from Western Australia that's actually yeah. started Firewire. Yeah, BB. It's two B's in his name. I can't remember. Yeah, Bert. Bert Berger. Yeah, Bert was yeah. a classic, or still is. <laughs> they broke the mold on that boy. <laughs> yeah. And he and Greg Lord were were teaming up together and and coming up with a whole new way to build a surfboard. Yeah, well, I I did not I did not know that, but I I know both of those guys, and yeah, they would be two peas in a pod, without a doubt. Yeah, I ran into both of them at Cardiff Surfing in the early two thousands, and uh, they I remember they they pulled up, paddled out, and pretty much took over. <laughs> <laughs> and they did it with a smile and like, "How you doing?" You know, it wasn't like there was any. Yeah. Was cool. Well, now. You know, we're talking about Greg Lore a little bit here, and of course, he he's a you know a game changer in a bunch of different ways. But perhaps this guy is the most uh, I don't know is the is the is this the wildest East Coast surfer ever? And or maybe I'm mischaracterizing. Help me out here, Dick Catree. I don't know much about Dick Catree, but I sense that this guy was a wild man. But this guy is probably part Pope, part uh, uh, I don't know, crazy. He was, he was a carny. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> no, Catchery was uh, uh, the godfather of East Coast surfing. He brought first. He created a reputation for himself and uh, carried along the East Coast with uh, charging big waves with uh, Greg Knoll and those guys uh, back in the early '60s. Um, he was it, and he brought that energy and knowledge and those relationships to the East Coast uh, and started the Surfboards Hawaii team, and then that morphed into the um, Hobie team, 
and they were the force to be reckoned with up and down the East Coast. They traveled extensively and won everywhere they went. Um, every now and again, they get beat. Uh, and and Capture was a terrible loser. Uh, he didn't like to be beaten at all. And uh, but he was How did that manifest itself. What would he do to? He would uh, go up and rant at the judges. He would try if he was running an event. He would change the rules. He was notorious for. He ran events and served as a competitor in the events he ran. Or more often, well, he was older than everybody. So it, if it, if there was a division for his age group, he would surf. But yeah. more often, it was his guys. And if they got beat in the heat, then he would go and raise all holy hell about it. If he was running the event and somehow it necessitated a rule change, he would do that. <laughs> yeah. He was he was a character of characters. Uh, but the energy put into events and, and creating a forward momentum for competitive surfing, and then on a, a, on a pro level, uh, he was always the guy. Yeah. Yeah, he, he had a, uh, a very colorful presence within the whole surfing world, from surfboard manufacturer to surfing events to media coverage uh, he was in the he was in the thick of it all the yeah. time he strikes me as sort of a larger than life character yeah I, he he was he was a, that's the way he carried himself he was a larger than life guy he he liked that he he catri's italian and he had a little bit of mafiosa type in him yeah and, and he carried that wherever he went and yeah i i got to know him over many years of uh mc and events for him and it was always uh it it, it got warmer and warmer year to year at, at first it was like you're working for me do this do that and then by the end of it he let me come in and do what i do and didn't have anything to say because i did it well and and uh he was quite happy with it yeah and um as i mentioned all of these random figures not random but super important figures from the east coast he remind he strikes me as somebody that maybe we could do a feature length film on his life <laughs> and there's some dark conflict there right there's, there's some dark, stuff there, there. There's, there's some i mean let's be real like we're talking the east coast was sort of a hub for nefarious activities in the late 70s early 80s and I'm sure that, um, and by the way, I'm not one to, you know, we all have dark pasts, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm some sort of hero here, but um, I find him fascinating on a bunch of different levels. What do you think of a feature film on the life of Dick Catri? Is that something that would, is there enough conflict there to create a good story? Yeah, if you could get all the information from it, I guess uh, Murph is still alive. He could he can spin stories until he uh, falls asleep at night. Murph is a, uh, a a deep well of stories. If, if you get Murph started, it's it's nonstop. You can't get a word in edgewise, and, and it's all interesting stuff. And he goes on and on. 
So, and Will you, you speak know, of Jack Murphy. So, for the listeners, Jack Murphy, give give us a little bit of insight about Jack, and then go back to Murph the Surf. Jack and and Catry started surfing, and their their involvement in competitions and everything down in Miami Beach, and they were both. Uh, they they would go around to the different hotels. They were lifeguards at, uh, and they'd get work at different places, but they were a diving team. They would do a diving show at the hotels and get to know all the women. They were both notorious womanizers, and, and that morphed into Murph was uh, breaking into hotel rooms and stealing jewelry and stuff. Uh, and I don't know what level of involvement Dick had in that. That was more Murph's story. Um, but yeah, uh, Jack Murphy went on to uh, go to New York and steal the star. Uh, uh, what was it called? The star of India Sapphire, the biggest sapphire in the world. Went broke into a museum and stole it. And they, they caught him, I don't know, three weeks, a couple months later. But uh, he was a, a notorious character. And then he got wrapped up in uh, a, a murder investigation and uh, was charged with murder and went to prison. And uh, is pretty well known that he found the Lord. Oh, OK. Interesting. And uh, as he proceeded to become the chaplain in the in the prison and live a righteous life, he, they, they let him get out. And to this day, he's a, a preacher of the good word. Wow. So maybe that's the guy we need to do. I bet they have tried to do a feature they film. No, they have done a feature I film. I thought, yeah, what was it called? What was it about? That's a, I don't know what the title was. It wasn't Murph the Surf. It was something else. Um, but yeah. Story of the stealing yeah, of the. Story of the, of the stealing of that. Yeah, it touched on his life, but more revolved around the nefarious character that pulled that off yeah huh i'm sure one of our listeners i wonder if that's a good movie i wonder if it was made well i saw it it wasn't bad it was interesting but then i had uh you know knowledge and of what it was all about so it was interesting from that standpoint so yeah i'm sure that uh uh warsaw has probably got some write-up about it and yeah. uh and has a, a click-through access on the uh, encyclopedia of surfing. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm going to take it. And I know I have done a little bit of a dive on, on him. He's an interesting guy. And he sounds like he'd be an interesting podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> you wouldn't get... <laughs> you, you, you would want to cut him off, but you wouldn't want to cut him off because all the stories he's telling are interesting but uh, sometimes he drags the story on a little too much and you got to move on. But yeah, he, you blow your mind to talk to Murph. He's a quite an interesting character to say the least. Wow. Um, Alive and kicking. So dig him up. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So you could get a hold of Catry's wife. She would know how to get a hold of Murph. Yeah. Or yeah. Yerkes, Bill Yerkes would know how to find Murph. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. 
Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. See what I mean? The East Coast has got a bunch of characters. Like, like we've got Mickey Dora, you know what I mean? You guys have got so many friggin' crazy characters. And I'm wondering why it is. First of all, is am I misrepresenting that? Are there, in fact, just the same amount of characters on the West Coast as there are on the East Coast? Maybe I'm too close to them, so Absolutely. I don't... Absolutely. Well, I mean, the East Coast is a, a much longer coastline than California uh, and, and the West Coast. We've got to include Oregon and, and Washington State, I guess, but... You know, yeah, I got specific characters from this different specific regions from the uh, the northeast up in uh, New Hampshire and the, the guys up there and then moving down into the, the character of all characters on the East Coast, Sid, uh, Bruzy, and then uh, you get out onto Montauk and Long Island and the characters all in there with the New York accent and all of that uh the, the surf shop owners down close to the city out, out in that portion of Long Island and then New Jersey, which should be a country all into itself because <laughs> everybody from New Jersey, uh, you know, talk about a, a, they, a separate entity. New Jersey is each city has a whole a slew of characters in, in the entire coastline because the the summertime beach business surf business of every little beach town from the entire length of the jersey shore is uh surf shops in every one of those little towns and stories and and longevity i mean some of those surf shops have been there since the 60s yeah. uh and then you get on down into uh Maryland, Delaware, you know, there's a little bit in, in Delaware, but uh, Ocean City, Maryland has a good history and some very serious characters uh, from there. And then Virginia Beach, which is the, the centralized area of the East Coast, both north and south. Virginia Beach is right in the middle. And the, the host of characters that came out of Virginia Beach um, and then uh, the Outer Banks, Nags Head, uh to down to hatteras that has a whole history of its own a, a little bit later it got developed later than all, all the the other ones um because it was uh, there wasn't much population there and uh, we opened a surf shop in nags head in 1975 and 
the wintertime residency of the Outer Banks was less than a thousand people. And now the Outer Banks, the population is a hundred thousand plus all year round. It, yeah. It's crazy. But so, and then you go south of there to Wrightsville and then south of right. And there's some great characters there, Roy Turner um, coming from that area and uh, Reggie Barnes and then down to Myrtle Beach. And uh, the guys from Myrtle Beach and then and, and Pauly's Island and uh, McKevlin's uh, in uh, South Carolina and, and then a, a little pocket in Georgia. And then you got the whole Florida coast from Jacksonville, each town, Jacksonville, St. Augustine, uh, Daytona, New Smyrna. Yeah. And you know, New Smyrna has emerged since the demise of Sebastian Inlet. The best surf on the uh, Florida coast, especially, I mean, year round, it's good. But summertime, when it's flat everywhere, New Smyrna breaks and and is very, uh, very well uh, placed with surfers and sharks. There's probably as many sharks in the lineup as there are surfers in any given day. But it picks up swell. It's like a little magnet right there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, everybody would comment about first peak at Sebastian Inlet, but when the demise of that went, then New Smyrna has come out to the forefront as the most consistent place in summertime surf. And, and tell me a little bit about why uh, Sebastian's no longer. Well, the, the, the great blunders uh, of the Army Corps of Engineer going to... Uh, change the design of the in the jetty because there was sand washing through and filling up uh, the inside of the the jetty into the inlet right. and so you don't want to fill the inlet up with sand so they decided they would change the 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 flow of water through the inlet and they changed the inlet and the, the nature of the shape of it and curved it mm. out further and to the south and uh, allowed the wave to wash through rather than to rebound. So mm. the way they had the, the jetty design, it created the first peak, which was actually a refraction off of the jetty across the, the wave and made this world-class uh, barreling peak. And yeah. the Army Corps of Engineers summarily destroyed it. Yeah, and there's plenty of surf at Sebastian Inlet, but the quality is, you, you can't write home about it. Yeah. You mentioned Sitabruzzi. Take me back up north a little bit. Um, <laughs> I believe he has a, a feature film, a biography, a documentary of some sort. Coming out this month. Yeah, he's, gonna, he's having a big celebration this summer. So tell me about Sid and what you know about his documentary and, and so forth. Well, they came and shot footage with me. I was honored to be included in it. They came to my house and then they, they came to the Indo board warehouse and we shot some stuff there. I mean, my uh, getting to know Sid went back to a, a wave pool contest in Mount St. Sever, Canada, which is outside of Montreal. And uh, there, there'll be a little segment in that film about that story, but uh, he, I have a poster from that event on the wall in my office and um, it, it, <laughs> just classic Sid story. 
Um, and I, I don't want to get into that whole story, but Sid Abruzzi is the, uh, the mayor of Newport, Rhode Island uh, on the surf side. There's the mayors in a lot of surf towns of, of surfers. And Sid is, is that. Uh, tell me create... about the story that you don't want to tell. What, give, give me what happened. In <laughs> well, this guy that that worked for the wave pool, it was it was uh, the the wave pool at Dorney Park in Pennsylvania, where the first World Inland Surf Championships was held. I was the MC, and all the boys came, all the Australians and. Uh, Sean and Californians and everybody came out for that. And the company that built that wave pool for Dorney Park also sold a design and built a pool at this Mount St. Sever, which is a ski resort outside of Montreal, about an hour and a half or so. And they, I met the, the, the promoter. I don't know if he was a, an owner I don't think he was, but anyway, at, at Dorney Park, I met this Canadian guy and he says, hey, I want to do a contest up in, in our wave pool. Would you come up and be the MC?" And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And so he and I, I went up with Tom Dugan from Eastern Surf Magazine and Charlie Kuhn and Charlie ended up winning the event. Um, but when we got there, there was this group of characters from Newport. And they had told this guy that they were international surf champions. <laughs> and it was all made up by Sid. And so when we met these guys and this this promoter had told us, oh yeah, these guys, they're surf champions from all over you know, Europe and, uh, and South Africa and stuff. And it was fucking Sid. <laughs> and uh, well, I, I can't remember the guy, I'll try to remember it, but the guy that made flight um, snowboards and skateboards and surfboards, flight, F-L-I-T-E. Yeah. And he was the one that kind of he and Sid put this group of nefarious characters together to come and and lend this international professional story to the event so that the media and this guy promoting the event would have a, a, a more uh, extending circumstances to what was going on in the wave pool. Right. This and, is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I met Sid. <laughs> Sid, Sid created an international flavor all of these guys from newport rhode island yeah yeah but then another time after i, I yeah. have to remember the timeline but at surf expo in one morning before surf expo i was driving uh toward the expo and on the side of the road is Sid with his thumb out hitchhiking. It was 730 in the morning. Yeah. And, he, and he looked like he just uh -oh. he, he it was an all nighter, which it was. Yeah. But the story was that he got arrested for peeing on the side of the, a building in downtown uh, Orlando because there was an event at one of the clubs or uh, a music venue in, in the center of downtown Orlando, which is about 
30 minutes away from where Surf Expo is. So at 7.30 in the morning, here Sid is just, you know, his long hair, and he was a mess. They let him out of the drunk tank, and he was hitchhiking back to Surf Expo. So I gave him a ride, and he told me, told me the story, and, and he was still half drunk anyway. Yeah. But uh, it just it was classic Sid and Sid, his alter ego. Uh, and, and I don't know, Sid was enough of a name for that, uh, was a notorious partier, alcoholic, uh, pedal to the metal all the time. And when he decided to quit drinking and sober up and everything, his, he's such an amazing guy. He, he is a, just a beautiful character. Uh, found the love of his life and got married and she's balanced him out and he's uh, I, I love him to death he's just such a, a phenomenal human being but back then it was like oh fucking Sid we go let's go the other way <laughs> yeah, that's so great well I'm so excited to, to see his documentary I, I don't know enough about Sid I know he's uh, absolutely legendary and I'm uh, looking forward to finding out and learning more about him through this film. And um, I, I should reach out. I've I've had some contact with him and I should reach out and do a podcast. Oh, it would be, I don't know who'd be better, Murph the Surfer, Sid. Because Sid's, his stories are all up there and the, the history of surfing in uh, Rhode Island. And he's a huge part of, of all of that. Um, you know, one of the th things you'll see in the film is underneath of his house, it was a basement that was kind of a dirt floor basement, not a built out basement, but that's where his band would play. And they would have these uh, parties uh, all night long uh, underneath of his house in this somewhat of a cave, if you will, because it was a dirt floor. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that the stories that he's got about what was going on <laughs> during that era. Sounds <laughs> like I mean, he was like Sid Vicious. I mean, he was he was a, a punk rock madman, and uh, they lived that lifestyle. He, and he was a skater. I mean, he what he did for skateboarding, he had a, an indoor skate park with a huge half pipe ramp. It was incredible. I went and skated that with him uh, in between the X Games uh, and Gravity Games. I think it was Gravity Games. I was working up yeah. in, in Rhode, Prop Island. Rhode Island. I was the... I actually went to those Gravity Games myself. Yeah, I was the head judge of this uh, street luge and downhill skateboarding. That was crazy, wasn't it? That was yeah. so awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was there. It was NBC's uh, answer to the X Games. Exactly. exactly. They had a lot of money behind it, and uh, yeah, it was a great production. Yeah, they sent us out. I was working at Surfer Magazine at the time, and they sent us out to cover it. And yeah, I remember it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, it was. Uh, and there's good stories from that one as well. <laughs> I got to get a hold of Sid too and do do some insight. Oh, yeah. you, he Sid Sid is great. Now that he's sober and all, he can yeah. he reference the stories and and actually talk about them without <laughs> without going off the deep end. Well, um, you you are a member of the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame, but you also are the announcer, sort of an organizer on some level. Um, I know you're involved in it and 
And this year, the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame, uh, it's each September at Surf Expos when you, um, you bring these people into the hall. What's the right word for it? No? Okay, back up. Tell me what's going on. That In September, we announce who the inductees are. I see. So the voting is done. It officially starts in February or March. And uh, they, they close the vote, the uh, or not the voting, the nomination process. So if you know somebody you think should be in the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame, write up a nomination, kind of a bio of who you're nominating and why they should be in that. And that those are submitted over that period from, say, February, March until um, May, beginning of June, something like that. And then it goes to a select committee who reviews all of those nominations and picks 10 of the new nominations. So those 10 join the list of who was left over from the previous year. So there's names in perpetuity once that you get to the nomination list. So they take 10 or 11 out each year. And so they replace those 10 or 11 every two years. So say they get nominations for 50 people, only 10 or 11 of those go into the perpetuity list. And then the the select committee, um, they send ballots out to, uh, I, I think there's 36 people and we vote on it and they compile the votes and then those uh, inductees, the list is already done. I've already got the list. I'm doing my editing of the bios that they give to me um, so that I do the voiceover on the video that Mitch Kaufman puts together a video that we will show in September. Okay, and now I get it. Yeah, and then nominees, we're going to keep a wrap on that until September when they're announced. Right now, it's button up our lips. Right, the the new not nominees, the new inductees. So we we want to make a distinction. Inductees are ones that are past the nomination process, and they are going into the the, to the. In September, you announce the inductees, and when do you induct them officially? In Surf Expo January. Oh, gosh, I hope I can. That's right. And I've been to that a few times. It's been good. I know I was there when um, I think Pat Mulhern accepted for his father. And I want to say maybe Shay Lopez or somebody. I think Greg Mungle was there um, getting inducted. So that was fun. I really enjoyed it. And um, and it, 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 it seems like the East Coast tribe is a lot closer uh, than the West Coast tribe. Again, this is just all my own, you know, imagination from what I see. It seems like that, I don't know, there's just, is that, is that a misnomer? You think? Well, because the, it's well known or should be well known enough within the, uh, the industry, of course, but general knowledge is that in the, in the heyday of surfing, which comes and goes, but the uh, population of the East Coast the, the manufacturers, the Quicksilvers and Billabongs and the surfboard companies, uh, 60% or better of their business is on the East Coast. So yeah. they do, you know, the East Coast supports these, keeps them in business. Yeah. And certainly the, the surfboard companies back in the 60s 
they sold their all their boards on the east coast they they every single manufacturer wanted a part of the east coast market because we were sucking up surfboards beyond anybody's compare um but you know the 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 um board riders uh thing that's going on now on both coasts i mean it's it's the same deal going on on california all the, the shops that have board riders teams in the different areas from cayucas and and on up to my, uh santa cruz and um further north there that's a similar thing i mean we just have a longer coastline and a more diverse group because new jersey people are so different than yeah. north carolina people are different from montauk and long island people there it, it's a whole different ethnicity if you will within the surfing world of each of those locations and the west coast you don't get that kind of diversification you don't hear about the characterization of people from oregon surfers in oregon to be like the surfers in montauk right yeah so, there's a homogenation here on the west coast almost we're all kind of the same more or less. Yeah, homogenous west coast stuff because you're jaded because you get so much more surf than we do yeah totally i mean it's true and one of the things that's fascinating is what you mentioned, and I, I don't think people realize it, but in the 60s, like Greg Knoll knew Dick Catree, um, the Hobie guys knew Dick Catree, like they were just moving tons of surfboards. And as you know, I do a vintage surfboard uh, auction, uh, California Gold Surf Auction. There are so many gems of old boards on the east coast and a lot of them are in these surf shops guys that own these shops have owned them forever have bought land in the 60s they don't there was no like pricing out of the surf shops because they bought them so cheap and they're sitting on collections of old boards from from casters to hobies to knolls that are just mind-blowing yeah i i i <laughs> i haven't seen collections that can rival um birds or uh, uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or uh uh What's, Matt's, his, Matt's what's, what's the guy's name that fixes the Ding King down in San Diego? Oh, Roper. Roper. I mean, Joe Roper's collection. Yeah, he awesome. he doesn't do what he does that Bird does. I mean, you go into Birds and look at all of that, and you go into Roper's factory, and they're just piles. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen the likes of that, though. I do know that there are lots of collectors here on the East Coast, without a doubt. Um, and yeah, there's hidden gems in all the surf shops. The 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 surf shops with great longevity. Uh, most of them have collections from people turning uh, turning them in or discovering yeah. it in an attic and say, "You want to buy this board? Twenty five bucks? Hell yeah!" Which does the same thing in California. I mean, they show up in California the same way. But again, the length of the coastline just there's there's so much that was sold out here there's there there's hidden gems all over the place um real quick tell me about um because i know dick katree and greg Noll were i think they were kind of tight um how is it that dick katree and I'm, I'm sure i'm butchering his last name uh he got involved with the hobie team was there uh, to your knowledge was there some politics or some infighting about who 
Dick was going to represent regarding the surfboard manufacturer? Was it going to be Greg Mall or, or it was Hobie or how did that I don't I, I know that Dick started with Surfboards Hawaii. Yeah. And that he changed over to Hobie. And I don't know the politics or the, the circumstance of, of that. Um, I'm sure Balsa Bill could weigh in on that. Um, but that was a huge transition. Um, Surfboards Hawaii was a, a, a good brand. And uh, as I remember as a, as a 15, 16 year old that Surfboards Hawaii was a beautiful surfboard, but Hobie was the, the one that just his team took over, but it started with, with Surfboards Hawaii. Uh, how that morphed, I don't know, but certainly something with Catry. Now, Catry's relationship with Greg Knoll, I, I, uh, you know, that was welded in their surfing, the yeah. big waves of the North Shore and Makaha. But I don't know if there was a surfboard deal that went on with Catry and, and uh, Greg Knoll. Well, look, we've got the, you're going to be announcing the new inductees in September, and then they will be inducted in January. Both happen at Surf Expo, uh, which I'm a huge fan of um, in Orlando. So that that's going to be fun. And we've got Sid's thing to look forward to, and you're still paddling. This is all good. It's been it's been great catching up with you, Hunter. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Scott. I mean, it's uh, you know I've known you for a long time. We keep crossing paths here. <laughs> that that meeting in Mexico was epic. <laughs> yeah. Look, have a great day, and uh, and again, I appreciate you coming on. Pleasure's mine. Thank you so much. A song Dickie Best wrote from our second album, uh, in memory of Elizabeth Reed.